Hello, everybody. Welcome to Rim Dynasty. This is an NBA history podcast and video series focused on the 2000s NBA starting from the 1999-2000 season. I am your supreme leader, Coach Lou. You may know me from TikTok. You may know me from the sidelines of Memphis Grizzlies games. Let me tell you a little bit about Rim Dynasty. So the typical episode of Rim Dynasty is going to feature the NBA news from a given week as well as a very detailed recap of a game that happened during that week. And that game is essentially going to be random based on whether I could find it or not. Sometimes it's going to be thought of as noteworthy. Maybe a star player has a career high. Maybe it's two stars facing off for the first time. Sometimes on its face, it is not going to be noteworthy or interesting whatsoever. Sometimes it's going to be two non-contending teams playing each other in the middle of February and the one star player between the two teams is out. But I'm of the opinion that every NBA game and every NBA player is noteworthy and interesting in some way. Now, what I'm going to do, because I am your benevolent supreme leader, is I'm going to provide a way for you to watch the game of the week beforehand. This is the first episode, so we couldn't really do that for today with the Sonics at Clippers game. But for every episode from now on, you'll be able to watch the game somehow um, if you'd like to watch it beforehand or or after listening if you want to do that now i don't want to turn you off from this show but this podcast is not for the casual nba fan this is for hardcore nba nerds only if you spend an hour and a half doing hoop grids every day trying to think of a more obscure role player who played for the clippers and, and the timberwolves rim dynasty is for you so today's episode is going to focus on the first week of the season, November 2nd through 6th of 1999. This one covers five days. Every other one is going to cover seven days. It's going to run from Sunday through Saturday of a given week. Next episode is going to be November 7th through November 13th, 1999, on down the line. Now, if you'd like a little bit of background information on a given team or just on the season in general, before listening to any episode, I have four preview episodes and a trailer up on YouTube or in the podcast feed that you're listening to right now. The four preview episodes are very in-depth 1999-2000 season previews for all 29 teams split up by division. If you love NBA minutia like I do, you're absolutely going to love this show. I'm digging through local newspapers, Sports Illustrated, Slam Magazine, all kinds of stuff, trying to find every single thing that happened in the league in a given week. I do curate it a little bit just to keep the show uh, shorter than five hours long, but nothing is too small to eventually worm its way onto this show. So, all right, let's get into it. Here is a brief outline of what we're going to talk about today. So first off, there are four new arenas in the NBA. We'll talk a little bit about each one of them and uh, what happened in their respective team's home openers. We'll go really, really in-depth into one of those home openers because our very first game of the week is the Seattle Supersonics taking on the LA Clippers at the brand new Staples Center. We'll talk about any transactions that took place during this week. There's a couple of them. Any new injuries that kind of sprouted up during that week. So for example, Patrick Ewing's uh, Achilles injury that happened during the 1999 NBA playoffs, that is not going to be mentioned in this because it's not a new injury. It's something that is uh, ongoing. We'll talk in no great detail about various games that happened, some events that happened during the week, anything that sticks out to me is noteworthy, like uh, some of the noteworthy performances that happened this week, um, the leaders in each stat category, things like that. I'm going to name the very first Rim Dynasty player of the week. And then as per requested by one of the listeners, I'm going to give a quote of the week. Now I read, I don't know, 
75, 80 different articles to uh, prepare for this episode. So, you know, there's there's plenty of funny stuff in there, little, little quotes from players. And there's one that really stuck out to me that I'll mention here at the end. But let's get started with the several grand openings that we've had in this past week. There are four new arenas housing five NBA teams that hosted their first games this week. There's another arena opening in this season, but we'll, we'll get to that when it happens. The Indiana Pacers, the Atlanta Hawks, the Denver Nuggets, and the Los Angeles Lakers and Clippers all have brand new homes. I'm going to start off in Indiana, Conseco Fieldhouse. It's not named after Jose Canseco, the baseball player. Conseco Fieldhouse is named after a financial services holding company based in Carmel, Indiana, which is near Indianapolis. The capacity of Conseco Fieldhouse is 18,345. They did sell out their first game. The Pacers won their home opener in Conseco Fieldhouse against the Boston Celtics, 115 to 108. Reggie Miller was the high scorer with 29 points. That is a Conseco Fieldhouse record at the time. The other tenant for now uh, is the Indianapolis Ice of the Central Hockey League, which is a minor hockey league. Um, and the WNBA's Indiana Fever will be established in the year 2000, so they're coming up soon, and they'll also play in Conseco Fieldhouse. Conseco Fieldhouse replaces Market Square Arena, where the Pacers called home since 1974 when they were in the ABA, and it's still open today. It's now called the Gainbridge Fieldhouse. In Atlanta, the Hawks opened up Phillips Arena. It's named for the electronics company Phillips, which I uh, just found out when researching this episode, it's not a hardware company that invented the Phillips head screwdriver. That's, that's what I always thought. I just assumed the capacity of Phillips Arena is 20,233. The Hawks did not sell out their first game and they did not win their home opener. Unfortunately, they had about 1,800 empty seats and lost to the Milwaukee Bucks by 10 points. Ray Allen and Sam Cassell were just too much for the Atlanta Hawks. They combined for 55 points, and the Bucks, as a team went 33 for 36 from the free throw line. It's hard to stop that. You can't defend the free throw line, folks. But the Hawks, at the time, are going to share Phillips Arena with the NHL's Atlanta Thrashers, uh, RIP to the Atlanta Thrashers. They're up in Winnipeg now. And Phillips Arena replaces the Omni Coliseum, where the Hawks had played since 1973. Before that, for the four years between relocating from St. Louis to christening the Omni Coliseum, they played at the tiny little arena on the campus of Georgia Tech, where the Yellow Jackets still play today. Um, and Phillips Arena is now called State Farm Arena. The Hawks still play there. In Denver, the Pepsi Center opened. It's named for Pepsi, which I'm told is a type of soft drink. I don't know. The capacity of the Pepsi Center, 19,099. The Nuggets sold out their home opener, and they won against the Phoenix Suns, 107-102 in overtime. The Suns were without Penny Hardaway, who was suspended for one game after throwing a punch at Miami's Rex Walters in the preseason. The Nuggets' Nick Van Exel had 34 points, 9 rebounds, and 9 assists to power the Nuggets to victory at home. The Nuggets share the Pepsi Center with the Colorado Avalanche of the NHL. And the Pepsi Center replaced McNichols Sports Arena, which is named after former Denver Mayor William McNichols Jr. Uh, the Nuggets had played at McNichols since 1975 when they were in the ABA as well, just like the Indiana Pacers. And now the Pepsi Center is named Ball Arena. The recent NBA and NHL champions still play in Ball Arena today. They should call that shit Puck Arena when the Avalanche play there, I think. And then in Los Angeles, the brand new Staples Center opened up. It's named after the office supply store, which itself is named after uh, these little pieces of metal 
that you put into a piece of paper to keep them stuck to other pieces of paper. But the capacity of the Staples Center for basketball games specifically is 18,997. The Lakers home opener was a sellout, a 103-88 victory over my beloved Vancouver Grizzlies. Uh, Shaq sleepwalked to a 28 point and 10 rebound outing to close out the Vancouver Grizzlies and the Clippers. Well, their home opener did not sell out. They were about 1,150 fans short of a sellout, but uh, we'll talk about the result of that game in just a minute. But the Sable Center provided a place for the Lakers and the Clippers to play together, which hadn't been the case beforehand. The Lakers played at the Great Western Forum, and the Clippers played at Los Angeles Memorial Sports Arena. The Lakers and Clippers are going to share the Staples Center with the NHL's Los Angeles Kings. Soon enough, they'll share it with an arena football league team called the Los Angeles Avengers. And of course, the Staples Center is also still around. It's now called Crypto.com Arena. All right, let's get into the game of the week, the Clippers game. If you want to watch this game, by the way, I've put a YouTube link to it in the description of this episode. I had to post it unlisted. Please do not snitch. If it gets taken down, I'll find another way to get it to the viewer slash listener. I've gone ahead and posted the link as well to the game that's going to be featured in the next episode. If you want to watch that beforehand, feel free to. If you want to watch it later, you can do that. If you just want to listen to or watch the podcast recap, you can do that. You can do whatever you want. Eventually, I'll put the games behind a paywall because most of them I did have to pay for. For now, I'll just have them freely available for the first several episodes of the show. So the very first thing that I want to do before we talk about any of the games is kind of set the stage for each team kind of mention some trends that are going on for each team. It's going to be a little different for this game because it's the first game of the season for both of these teams. They're both zero and zero, but I'll reiterate a couple things that I mentioned in the Pacific Division preview episode. So both of these teams were five and three in the preseason. The Clippers and Sonics did play each other in the preseason. The Clippers won that one 104 to 93. And as I mentioned, you know, the Clippers don't necessarily have very high expectations for this season in the 99 season they were 9 and 41 they're a very young team a lot of their main players are under the age of 25 and the sonics they're a little bit older they do not have a high let's say like preseason expectation in terms of win total their their over under win total was 34 and a half before the season but they were 500 last season of course the it was a lockout shortened season they were 25 and 25 but they have Vin Baker and Gary Payton, you know, two all-star players. They've got guys like Horace Grant, Vernon Maxwell. So what we're going to see in this game is kind of a more composed team full of veterans. You've got all-stars and NBA champions on the roster in Seattle um, going against a team with some really talented young players, some guys who have a lot of potential left, you know, to reach such as Michael Oluwakandi, who's going to start at center for the LA Clippers. But yeah, like I mentioned, a lot of the players on the Clippers are are very young. They're in their first few years of their career. They're going against some veterans like Horace Grant, Gary Payton. It it may not go well for the Clippers, but we'll we'll see, you know? Now, when I watched this game, I, I really found myself rooting for the Clippers uh, kind of subconsciously. And I'm not sure if that's because it was a home broadcast. It was called by Ralph Lawler and Bill Walton, which is a just a fantastic combination. If that doesn't make you want to watch this game, I don't know what will. It was a home broadcast. It was a home game for the Clippers. I kind of like, you know, rooting for the underdog a little bit. And I like the Supersonics team. I like a lot of the players on it. But something about this Clippers team and this core of 
you know, Lamar Odom, Michael Ola Candy, Maurice Taylor, some of the wings that they have. It's really endearing to me, even though they're not a very good team. They are pretty fun to watch. So this is a pretty exciting game at times. It's a, it's a very fun watch. So definitely, you know, if you're kind of on the fence about if you want to watch kind of a full game, at least watch the second quarter of this game. All right, so before we start, I'm going to give you everybody who played for both teams in this game. I'm going to focus on the starting lineups, of course. So the visiting Seattle Supersonics, starting at point. Gary Payton, he's in his 10th season out of Oregon State. Many-time all-star and defensive first or second team. Starting at shooting guard, Brent Berry, the son of Rick Berry. He is in his fifth season, also out of Oregon State. Starting at the small forward, you've got Ruben Patterson. He is in his second season out of Cincinnati. He came over to the Sonics from the Los Angeles Lakers. Starting at power forward, Horace Grant, longtime Chicago Bull, comes to Seattle from the Orlando Magic. He is in his 13th season out of Clemson. And then Vin Baker starting at center. He's in his seventh season out of the University of Hartford. Other guys who are going to play for the Seattle Supersonics in this game, Vernon Maxwell in his 12th season out of Florida. Jelani McCoy in his second season out of UCLA. Richard Lewis is in his second season. Greg Foster is in his 10th season, went to UCLA and UTEP. Fred Vinson in his second year out of Georgia Tech. And Shamond Williams in his second year out of University of North Carolina. And then for the LA Clippers. So the Sonics played 11 guys. The Clippers are going to play nine guys. Starting at point, Eric Murdoch. He is in his ninth season out of Providence. Derek Anderson at the shooting guard, third-year player out of Ohio State and Kentucky. Lamar Odom starting at the three. He is a rookie out of Rhode Island. Number four pick by the Clippers in the 99 draft. Maurice Taylor starting at the four. He's in his third year, played at Michigan and LSU. And then Michael Oluwakandi is in his second season out of the University of the Pacific. He's starting at center. The four guys coming off the bench for the LA Clippers, Tyrone Nesby, second season out of Vincennes University and UNLV. Eric Piatkowski in his sixth year out of Nebraska. Brian Skinner, a second year big man out of Baylor. And then Troy Hudson, third year point guard who played at Missouri and Southern Illinois University. So this game starts off very, very quickly. The Clippers win the tip, but the ball goes directly into the hands of Seattle's Ruben Patterson. He streaks toward the basket, dunks it five seconds into a game. So not a great start for the LA Clippers, but they make it up pretty quickly as they go on an eight nothing run. Getting those eight points, however, took quite a while because this young Clippers team turns the ball over a ton and they miss a lot of easy shots like layups shots very close to the rim there's a really funny sequence i uh i really liked this where the clippers they're on a three-on-one fast break the crowd gets really really into it brent barry gets a steal vin baker then is blocked on the other end clippers push it in transition once again it's a two-on-one fast break but they miss a layup on the fast break Lamar Odom does score off the offensive rebound, but it, it's about a minute-long sequence where the Clippers look really, really good on defense, but just horrible on offense. But the whole time, the Sonics aren't really able to get very much going. They get locked in soon enough, and the Clippers are forced to call for time when Eric Murdoch slips and falls after getting tied up by Gary Payton. The Clippers are up 10-9 to at that point with 7-17 left to go in the first quarter. They've been pretty nervous and excited, it seems. The Sonics haven't really been too engaged so far. Further on in the first quarter, the Clippers are doing this, you know, the classic 
90s, 2000s thing where they're they're just feeding the ball to the big man down low over and over. In this case, it's mostly Maurice Taylor, who's definitely more offensively talented than Michael Oluwakandi. Maurice Taylor in his second season for the Clippers averaged about 17 points a game, and Michael Oluwakandi is a rookie, averaged nine. The Candyman as Oluwakandi is called. He, he's much more of uh, a defensive-focused player than Maurice Taylor is, although the Clippers are hoping that that's going to change at some point in the future. They hired Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as an assistant coach to help shepherd Michael Oluwakandi along in his, in his journey. The Candyman is a very recent convert to being a basketball player, but he's big and he's, he's smart, he's well-educated. So the Clippers are hoping that Kareem is going to turn him into something. He's got all the kind of athletic tools that he needs to be a great NBA player. He just has only been playing basketball for like five years at this point. So after the first time out of the game, the Sonics really, really kick it into gear, particularly Gary Payton. He is able to just slice through the Clippers defense over and over, either get a layup or draw a double team and just bounce pass it to an open man every time down the floor. For example, Ruben Patterson gets a big dunk to put the Seattle Supersonics up 16 to 14. Tyrone Nesby in particular, he begins to showcase one of those kind of 90s, 2000s hallmarks, which is the relative hesitancy and skepticism toward the three-point shot. At one point, Nesby hesitates for several seconds while being wide open from three before just clanking one off the rim. And then on another possession, he has the ball. Again, he's wide open. Again, he hesitates for a few seconds. This time he dribbles in like maybe a foot and a half, maybe two feet, and absolutely drills along too. Uh, and it's really awesome. I, I, I had to laugh when I watched it. But at this point in the game, Maurice Taylor has really been allowed to kind of go to work. He is uh, three for seven from the field. He has six points at the end of the first quarter. He has the most shot attempts in the game. Most of his shot attempts are post-ups. He's right up there with Tim Duncan in frequency of going for the bank shot. Ralph Lawler and Bill Walton bring it up at some point in the second quarter, I believe. Obviously, Tim Duncan, who is also in his third year, is a little bit better at it than Maurice Taylor is. Tim Duncan has, has just won you know, his first championship and been fantastic. But Maurice Taylor is, is pretty, pretty good. Now, toward the end of the first quarter is when one of the stars of this game, and really the star of the LA Clippers, really begins to introduce himself to the game. And that is when he hits a buzzer-beating floater to cut the Sonics' lead to three points. So Lamar Odom was was pretty quiet, relatively speaking, in the first quarter. He did some rebounding. He pushed the ball up the floor a couple times, didn't score too much, but he is not going to be quiet for very much longer. At the end of the first quarter, it's 25-22. to 22. Neither team shot it very well, both around 38%. That is about to turn around for both teams. The second quarter is a very high-scoring and uh, relatively efficient from the field quarter for both teams. So Maurice Taylor opens up the scoring in the second quarter with a turnaround bank shot, cuts Seattle's lead to one. They trade baskets for a little while before Tyrone Nesby knots it up at 29 apiece. And then this is where the star of the game for the Seattle Supersonics introduces himself to the game. He scores for the first time at about nine minutes left in the quarter. He was very, very quiet in the first quarter, 0 for 2, in four minutes. That is not going to be the case in the second quarter. Right around nine minutes, he hits a layup, and then he hits a three-pointer, and then he gets fouled, hits both free throws. Um, the team's trade misses, and then Vernon Maxwell again is fouled and hits both free throws. So all of a sudden, it is a nine-to-one run 
over the course of two minutes where Maxwell scores all nine points. The one is Lamar Odom hitting one out of two free throws, which happens a lot. Uh, But Odom does stop the run with about seven minutes to go in the second quarter with a, a massive dunk that puts the score at 40 to 32. Lamar Odom has been really, really active in this game, rebounding and pushing the ball at the floor. He is about to begin scoring, but the Clippers are going to kind of go with Lamar Odom as the point guard for basically the remainder of the game. Uh, They did start Eric Murdoch. He only plays a handful of minutes in this game, and Odom plays most of the game. He is going to bring the ball up almost every possession. He shares that responsibility with Derek Anderson. He's just better than Eric Murdoch is. You know, he is insanely versatile, and he shows that from you know, the very beginning of his career. This is his first game, and you're going to see he has a great game. Now, the other reason that Odom is going to play a lot in this game, uh, not only the point guard situation, but also Maurice Taylor is going to get in foul trouble in this quarter. About two minutes ago, Maurice Taylor picks up his fourth foul. That is just tough because... Taylor has been great in this game so far. While Taylor still has three fouls, the game starts to get away from the Clippers a little bit. Gary Payton and Vernon Maxwell really just getting to the rim at will. Gary Payton starts showboating. He throws a bounce pass through his own legs at one point, which leads to a turnover. He's a very entertaining and and performative guy. He, at one point, Payton hits a, a nice finger roll layup in transition gets a technical foul for taunting Lamar Odom. Vernon Maxwell, once he hits another three-pointer, he starts to talk some shit, and uh, he hits another layup to give him 18 points for the quarter. Uh, The Sonics just dominated this second quarter. The Clippers do not close out the quarter well at all. Odom misses several free throws, which, you know, like I said, running theme for him. He is not a good free throw shooter at all, was not at Rhode Island either. But with the Sonics up, 62 to 48 at halftime it really looks like the Clippers only hope is for Vernon Maxwell to remain out for the remainder of the game which he might because he toward the end of the second quarter he limps to the bench and later back to the locker room after seemingly getting his foot either stepped on or kicked in the ankle by Gary Payton inadvertently of course so Vernon Maxwell does miss the start of the third quarter um, but overall in the first half Things kind of went as expected. It's a young team in their new building, kind of getting clowned by you know a veteran-laden team. Do they have the the gall? Do they have the moxie to make things interesting in the third quarter? Right off the top, Lamar Odom hits a three-pointer. It looks like the Clippers have life again, but so do the Seattle SuperSonics because there's uh, there's this great sequence with about ten and a half minutes left in the third where Seattle turns the ball over, LA recovers it, Brent Berry gets a steal. As he's like running out of bounds, he passes it off, uh, gets it back, throws down a huge dunk. Brent Berry, as I mentioned, is the son of Rick Berry. Say it with me. One of the great assholes this game has ever known. Brent Berry was the slam dunk champion as a rookie. So, you know, seeing him get off a big dunk like that in a game is uh, is a great treat. But the next possession, Gary Payton catches Michael Oluwakandi napping, cuts right into the paint, scores with ease. The Clippers have got to get some defense. They've been playing okay defense. They've blocked some shots. Oluwakandi's been rebounding. Odom has been rebounding. But they need to stop kind of this onslaught from the Sonics. So the Clippers bring in their other second-year big man alongside Oluwakandi, Brian Skinner. And for like 58 game seconds, there is this massive lineup on the floor for the Clippers with Derek Anderson, 
Brian Skinner, Maurice Taylor, Lamar Odom, and Michael Olawakandi. Eventually, Tyrone Nesby is brought in for Olawakandi because uh, the Candyman is in a little bit of foul trouble, and Candyman plus Brian Skinner means that there's absolutely no scoring potential in the front court. Horace Grant, who the Supersonics acquired from the Orlando Magic over the summer, uh, hits one of his trademark long twos. Maurice Taylor gets his fifth foul, fouling Gary Payton on a layup. Payton then hits the and one. Uh, Lamar Odom gets two great dunks and then hits a turnaround jumper. Vin Baker, who quietly has been really, really good in this game, hits a shot. And then Lamar Odom uncorks this really timely three-pointer. And Ralph Lawler lets out a huge, iconic... As the Clippers cut the Sonics' lead to nine, 80 to 71. The Clippers' crowd at that point is absolutely raucous. Um, for really one of the first times all game, Odom then gets a big rebound. Brian Skinner loses the ball in the post. Peyton scores in transition, and all of a sudden, those raucous cheers become boos that rain down on Lamar Odom as he clanks a three. And Derek Anderson gets absolutely smashed by a Horace Grant screen. At the end of the third quarter, the Sonics are up by 13 when Richard Lewis hits a three at the horn. And although the Clippers did outscore the Sonics in the third quarter, it feels like with that Lewis three, that uh, any momentum that the Clippers had is completely gone. In the fourth quarter, Lamar Odom is really trying to will the team back into the game, but Brian Skinner gets the chair pulled out from beneath him turns the ball over in the post, Vin Baker scores, the Clippers get a shot clock violation, and then Vernon Maxwell, who missed the entire third quarter, he re-enters the game, he picks up where he left off. He, he missed a few shots in the fourth quarter, but then he hits a technical free throw after an Candy technical foul. Seconds later, hits just a, a back-breaking three. And after that shot is where the Clippers start to take really rushed, kind of wild shots. They're very clearly jittery. Odom gets blocked. Maxwell hits another three. Tyrone Nesby misses a layup. Maxwell hits a layup. All of a sudden, Vernon Maxwell is up to 11 points in the quarter, 29 points for the game. And the Clippers' body language at that point signals the game is over. Even a big dunk by Derek Anderson with 3.20 to go doesn't do much to uh, liven the team or the crowd up. For all intents and purposes, the game ends with about 2.45 to go when Michael Oluwakandi airballs a jumper. The Sonics run out the clock, and Lamar Odom, who put up 30 points, more than he ever scored in a game in college, he walks dejected into the locker room as the home crowd boos, defeated in his first official professional game. The Seattle Supersonics win 104-92 to on the road in Los Angeles. The man of the match is Vernon Maxwell. Uh, he shot 50% from the field, 50% from three, four for eight from three, nine for nine from the free throw line. 18 points in the second quarter, 11 in the fourth. Completely iced the game. You know, could have gone for 40 if he hadn't gotten injured. Sonics coach Paul Westfall was was a little nervous. He could have he could have come in in the third quarter, I read, but Westfall didn't want to put too much strain on him. But honorable mention for man of the match has got to be Lamar Odom. Uh, to come into your first NBA game and have 30 points, 12 rebounds, 3 assists, 2 blocks, 2 steals, play point guard for a lot of the game. Bringing the ball up the, up the floor as a 6'10 big in 1999 is phenomenal. 
The only knock on Lamar Odom's performance in this game is the free throws. He's not a good free throw shooter. He was 8 of 15 in the game, shot 69% in college. Obviously, you are not a finished product in your rookie season, especially not in your very first NBA game. Um, So, you know, he, he has room to improve even with such a stellar start to his NBA career. But as Bill Walton and Ralph Lawler said multiple times, a star was born in L.A. during this game against the Seattle Supersonics. So despite the loss, the Clippers have somebody that they can truly build around and will absolutely get better because he's only 19 years old at the time of this game. So let's move into the transactions. Also 19 years old, just like Lamar Odom. Maverick center Leon Smith. He signed his rookie scale contract this week after holding out for a while and kind of weighing his options. So he signed a three-year, $1.5 million guaranteed contract. He was the last pick of the first round by the San Antonio Spurs traded to the Dallas Mavericks on draft night. This guy's had a tumultuous life, unfortunately. Grew up a ward of the state of Illinois, drafted out of Martin Luther King High School in Chicago at the age of 18. Dallas Mavericks head coach Don Nelson says he is absolutely not ready to play in the NBA at all. They've actually asked him to either sign with a CBA team, that's the Continental Basketball Association, or an IBL team, which is the International Basketball League. So Nelson has asked him to sign in the CBA or IBL for at least a couple years. But after examining his options, meeting with IBL St. Louis side head coach Bernie Bickerstaff, former Washington Wizards head coach, Leon Smith declined to sign with a minor league team, signed his rookie scale contract, and will take the roster spot that he is entitled to by being a first round pick. He will not play for the Dallas Mavericks for quite a while. The strength and development coaches are going to develop him from a high school center to an NBA center, and that's going to take quite a while. But he will be on the roster, will get paid his half-million-dollar guaranteed salary. And in Smith's very first practice with the Mavericks back in July, he stormed off the court when somebody told him to do some sprints. So, you know, he, he's had a rocky start to his professional career already. You just hope he can turn things around. Uh, we'll, we'll keep updated on what goes on with him throughout this season because uh, it is a lot, unfortunately. The Mavericks also waived a player named Kibu Stewart and signed a guy named Rick Hughes. Kibu Stewart was a no-call, no-show to the Mavericks game against the Golden State Warriors, didn't answer his hotel phone or his cell phone, later informed the Mavericks he was driving back to his hometown of uh, Bakersfield, California, there was no issue with his contract. He wasn't unhappy with it. He just thanked the Mavericks for the opportunity, cleaned out his locker, and left. Stewart had played 15 games with Philadelphia in 1998, and it appears that he went back to the Sioux Falls Sky Force of the Continental Basketball Association. So Dallas then signed to replace him another power forward named Rick Hughes. He's a rookie, uh, undrafted in 1996, coming to Dallas from Beirut, recently cut by Utah in training camp. As a college player at Thomas More College, which is in the Cincinnati area, south of the river in Kentucky, at the time D3, now it's D2, Hughes averaged at least 24 points per game every season. So that's great for him. Of course, it is D3. Now, Thomas More College is a Roman Catholic institution, and Rick Hughes, in classical Roman Catholic fashion, uh, said this when he was signed by the Mavericks. I pretty much knew within my mind that God would make a way for me, regardless of that situation with Utah. I'm glad that he shut the door and opened this one, because this one seems more wide open. You can play your game and be a little more freestyle. 
up in Utah, it would have been a little more restricted. And Hughes says that the Utah Jazz would have kept him if he agreed to start the season on the injured list. He was not injured. So he said, based on the fact that I'm walking with God, I can't lie to anybody to get on an NBA team. So I refuse to say that I'm hurt. And so I'll go over this very briefly. There used to be an injured reserve in the NBA. There's not anymore um, because people abuse it by doing things like putting an uninjured player on the injured list to kind of carry more roster spots. But uh, Rick Hughes was not about to do that uh, because he's walking with God. So good for him. And the other transaction, Austin Crozier of the Indiana Pacers signed a one-year contract extension. Uh, That one-year extension is actually a player option alone. The Indy Star reports that it's a sign of goodwill for Crozier, who is entering his third year in the league. He's often injured, has not played very many games. So it allows him to get some more money if he does, in fact, suffer you know, a major injury that's going to keep him from playing in the NBA ever again. Mostly shows that they believe in him, they like him, they want him to stick around in Indiana. And with it being a player option, you know, if he earns a spot in the rotation and improves and stays healthy, he can decline that option and sign a better contract with the Pacers instead this coming summer. But Crozier really appreciates it, uh, gives kind of a funny quote here. A lot of teams in the league wouldn't do this for a player who's done as little as I have. So I I like that kind of humility there. He continues, it shows the quality of the organization. Them putting their money where their mouth is makes me believe that I'm going to play here this year and I'm looking forward to it. Having the option to reject the deal protects my upside if I have a good year. So speaking of the one-year extension, there are some weird contract things that are going to go on under the CBA that runs from 99 to 2005, things that just aren't the norm nowadays. And the reporting, unfortunately, isn't as robust back then as it is now. There are no like salary cap experts who break down everything. There are no, oh, what's his name? One sec. Bobby Marks. There's no Bobby Marks kind of guy for ESPN or any other channels who like kind of their entire job is to explain salary cap minutia to the masses. The Woj-like character of the era really is uh, Peter Vasey, who writes for the New York Post and NBC. He does not really write about salary cap machinations. He he mostly talks about rumors and things like that. So a lot of the kind of minutia of the salary cap and, and player contracts kind of evade local reporters. So the information that we get is kind of kind of imperfect in this era, unfortunately. But people got weird things like a, a one-year extension that was just a player option. Not, I'm not going to say it was regularly, but I don't think that's allowed nowadays, let's just say. A few things that stuck out to me in the news for this week. Boston Celtics had their best start since 1993. They're 3-1 and with wins over the Raptors. That's a great win. The Wizards and the Hornets. The Hornets is also a great win. Lakers coach Phil Jackson helped fundraise for Bill Bradley in his presidential campaign. Bill Bradley was one of New Jersey's senators for three terms from 1979 to 1997. He, of course, was a Rhodes Scholar, played college basketball at Princeton, and studied overseas at Oxford University in England. After that, of course, played for the New York Knicks, won two championships with the Knicks in the 1970s. But Bill Bradley is running for president as a Democrat. He and Al Gore are the only two major Democrats running. We're just two, maybe two and a half months away from the Iowa caucus. So, you know, look forward to that. Look forward to hear how the how Al Gore versus Bill Bradley goes. 
So I mentioned during the Spurs preview, there was there was a little bit of uncertainty about whether the Spurs were going to be in San Antonio in the near future. Um, there was a referendum in the county that San Antonio is in, Bexar County, about whether or not to increase taxes a little bit to fund a new stadium for the Spurs to play in. Well, it turns out that people want to keep the team that just won the NBA championship. So it was a 61 to 39 victory in favor of a uh, temporary hotel and car rental tax increase in the county to help fund a $175 million stadium in downtown San Antonio. For the opponents of the tax increase, the Spurs championship just could not have come at a worse time. But, you know, the the team also was going to relocate, if not for getting a new stadium. They had Tim Duncan. They had uh, David Robinson. People don't want to see their stars leave. $28.5 million out of 175 will be paid for by the Spurs organization. $146.5 million by that tax increase. It was not like a fait accompli. Bexar County voters and, and voters in Texas in general you know, are pretty hesitant to, to increase taxes. Bexar County voters in particular had voted recently against fluoridating the water supply um, and only barely passed a five-year half-cent tax increase uh, to help fund the Alamo Dome in 1989, where the Spurs play at this current time. Former San Antonio Mayor Henry Cisneros had tried to fluoridate the drinking water in San Antonio several times, but, quote, the fear of cancer from fluoridation, supposed communist plots to control Americans, and big government tyranny in small communities barred him from being able to pass it during his time as mayor, along with the novelty of trying to pass citywide legislation in that decade. Now, one of the big opponents of stadium funding in San Antonio was New Orleans Mayor Mark Morial, who was hoping to lure either the San Antonio Spurs or the Houston Rockets to come to New Orleans. Mayor Morial is publicly trying to get the Spurs to relocate to New Orleans. New Orleans had just constructed a new stadium with hope of luring an existing NBA team to town. The only current tenant of that building as of you know this week in 1999 is a minor league hockey team called the New Orleans Brass. While the Spurs are going to stay because they secured the funding via the referendum, Houston area voters rejected a measure to fund a new stadium recently. NBA Commissioner David Stern says that at the very least, the Rockets are going to serve out their lease in Houston, which ends in 2003. But after that point, Stern would not prohibit the Rockets from relocating. Hornets big man Derek Coleman has been charged with DWI after a car accident that severely injured his his teammate Eldridge Rakasner. He'll, he'll be out for at least six weeks. Um, he has a partially collapsed lung. He has a, a facial fracture. During an interview, Derek Coleman said the media blew the accident out of proportion. He wasn't actually intoxicated and that he's just glad everybody's fine. It's something that, you know, we that everybody can look back on and laugh at. And then one day later, Derek Coleman had to apologize for his comments because he said, oh, it was insensitive because Eldridge Rakasner is, uh, is not actually fine. And there was another passenger who wasn't an NBA player who was uh, more gravely injured. So Derek Coleman, who uh, was not injured at all in, in this car accident, and was able to play, you know, within a couple days. He's coming off like a real asshole here. I mentioned that there there are some changes in the rules. So, for example, hand checking is now disallowed. There's no contact allowed during drives. Some games this season so far, of course, this is you know five days worth of games, have just a massive amount of free throws overall. So far, the rate has been identical. That let me say the ratio of free throw attempts to field goal attempts 
has been basically identical. It's about 33%. But both teams in a game having 40 or more free throw attempts only happened five times in the entire 1999 season. And twice already in this one week has that happened. Indiana playing in New Jersey, the two teams combined for 99 free throw attempts. Detroit playing in Miami combined for 91. I mentioned during the New Jersey Nets preview that especially with them really relying on drives to the rim from four of their players, that they are expected to have a much higher free throw rate. Uh, We'll keep track on that throughout the season because that is something that um, the referees are really cracking down on heavily right now, or at least it seems like that to the coaches and the players. Of course, I mentioned in the aggregate, it's identical to the last year, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. Miami Heat rookie Rodney Buford was sent home from Canada when Canadian customs officers found two joints on his person. Lock him up. Unfortunately, he was not charged. He was not arrested. He was not detained, uh, but he was not allowed into the country for Miami's game versus Toronto. Um, per the league's anti-drug program, he will undergo counseling. Tim Hardaway... Uh, His teammate on the Heat gives this great line. He says, it shocked everybody to hear about this, but we'll welcome him back to the team. He's well-liked by the guys. Yeah, probably because he's their fucking dealer. NBA.com TV. Not NBA TV. NBA.com TV. The NBA has debuted NBA.com TV. It is the league's new 24-hour television network. It airs from beautiful Secaucus, New Jersey, where the NBA Replay Center is now. NBA.com TV combines real-time statistics, scores, and news from NBA.com with live studio-based programming, real-time look inside of NBA games, game highlights, vintage NBA games, NBA videos, and special programming from the NBA archives. And just this week, free Japanese-language audio broadcasts of the 1999 NBA Japan games featuring the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Sacramento Kings in two regular season games at the Tokyo Dome. We're not sponsored by NBA.com TV. The NBA Japan games, as I mentioned, two regular season games taking place in Japan. This is the fifth year that that has happened. Minnesota and Sacramento played in the games. Minnesota won one of the games. Sacramento won one. This is the fifth time out of five times uh, that the two teams have split the games in Japan. These are the high men in each statistical category in the box score for the week. For blocks, two guys in the same game each had seven blocks. Dallas's Sean Bradley and Golden State's Adonal Foyle. Dallas won that game 120 to 97. Uh, Dallas started two and one. Golden State started 0 and three. How bad do you have to be to have a guy block seven shots in a game and you lose by 23? That's pretty bad. The most steals. Eddie Jones had nine steals this week versus Indiana. It was a a defensive clinic by the Charlotte Hornets uh, as they beat Indiana 98-89. to Charlotte is 2-1 on the season. Assists, Mike Bibby had 16 assists versus the Denver Nuggets in a 109-94 victory for Vancouver. Vancouver is 1-2. For rebounds, Shaquille O'Neal had 20 rebounds versus the Dallas Mavericks in a 105-97 victory. The LA Lakers are 2-1. And then the high points for the week, Grant Hill, he had 41 points against Miami in a two-overtime loss. 
122 to 128. Detroit has started 0 and 4, which has got the Chicago Bulls licking their lips and rubbing their hands together menacingly. They are loving the Detroit Pistons fall off because they're going to have cap space in the summer of 2000 so that they can lure Grant Hill to town. It is now time to give out the very first Rim Dynasty Player of the Week award. And it brings me great joy and great honor to present the Rim Dynasty Player of the Week award to Mr. Kevin Garnett. In two games this week against the Sacramento Kings in Tokyo, Japan, Kevin Garnett averaged 32.5 points per game, 14.5 rebounds, 4 assists, 3 stocks, averaged 41 minutes per game, shot 25 of 45 from the field, that's about 56%, 5 of 9 from 3, that's the same percentage, 10 of 11 from the free throw line, insane efficiency, uh, true shooting, I, I don't think had been invented then, uh, but that was an eye-popping 65% true shooting. Those are Steph Curry numbers. And of course, uh, Kevin Garnett is shooting mid-range jumpers. So uh, congratulations to Kevin Garnett. Your plaque is in the mail, big fella. If I look or sound stressed right now, it's because uh, I thought that for a second that my computer had not been recording the entire time that I've been recording. And I got very upset and very scared. Uh, but that did not happen. So we're moving on to the Rim Dynasty quote of the week. It comes from one of the all-time silly NBA guys, Steve Francis. After the Houston Rockets started 0-3, and particularly after a 10-point loss to the San Antonio Spurs, Steve Francis said, I figured it would be a slow process, but I didn't think we'd lose our first three games. If anybody told me that, I would have laughed at them or kicked them in the stomach. I love that. He's very funny. Here is a newspaper quote. The Pippen and Francis trades left Rudy Tomjanovich with a revamped roster, a coach who preaches defense first. Tomjanovich has tolerated Barkley's defensive lapses because of what he provided offensively and on the boards. Now he has a number of players who think defense means 24 seconds of rest between shots. And that passage is in stark contrast to something that Steve Francis said that I mentioned in the preseason preview for the Houston Rockets. Steve Francis, who is, who is an all-offense player, not a defensive presence whatsoever, he was talking about how, you know, it starts on the defensive end for me. All I want to do is play lockdown defense and pass the ball to, to Charles Barkley and Hakeem Olajuwon, and he is, he is not doing that. Steve Francis is, is actually playing really bad defense. I took a look at all of the point guards that he defended uh, while he was on the floor, especially, I mean, kind of focusing on the starters. So the Houston Rockets have played the San Antonio Spurs, the Utah Jazz, and the Milwaukee Bucks. So for the Utah Jazz, John Stockton, he went for 18 points and 7 assists on 8 of 8 shooting. Francis didn't stop any of that. I didn't look particularly at the possessions that Francis was on the floor for that one just because he had kind of a perfect game. Now, Milwaukee and San Antonio, those games I examined, particularly the possessions that Francis was on the court with these point guards. Sam Cassell against the Houston Rockets went for 35 points, 11 assists on 15 of 20 shooting. With Francis on the floor, Sam Cassell scored 30 of those points, had 10 of those assists, shot 13 of 15, and then was 4 or 5 on free throws that resulted from Francis' fouls. And then in San Antonio, both Avery Johnson and Terry Porter had great games against the Houston Rockets. They combined for 24 points and 11 assists on 11 of 19 shooting when they shared the floor with Steve Francis. And with Francis off the floor, Johnson and Porter combined for 8 points, 3 assists 
on one of eight shooting. So Francis is not playing good defense. He shouldn't be because he's a rookie, but it's just kind of funny that he said, like, oh, I'm going to play great defense this year. And then in his first three games, he he's not. So that's all I got for you this episode. I greatly appreciate you listening. If you're listening on a podcast platform, watching, if you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and let me know what you think about this episode uh, by DMing me. You can follow me on all of the social media platforms. It's at Rim Dynasty NBA, except for on TikTok, where it's at Rim Dynasty NBA pod. Links to that are in the description. But yeah, if you liked it and you're listening on a podcast platform, please rate it on there. If you're watching on YouTube, uh, please like, comment, subscribe, all that stuff. Yeah, appreciate your time and have a good one. Coach Lou out. Dynasty.